You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 43, Brave Despair. Thanks for joining me. As promised, this episode we'll be tackling the naval campaign in the Mediterranean during the spring and summer of 1798. So, let's dive in. Even before Bonaparte's expedition set sail, British spies in southern France reported that something big was brewing. By the end of July, the Mediterranean fleet of the Royal Navy had been combing the sea for months, on the hunt for Napoleon's flotilla. Their luck had been rotten. Every tip the British got turned out to be wrong. Every time they got a reliable report on the position of the French fleet, they arrived to find they were too late. Although they were operating in the same waters, storms managed to hit the British and miss the French. On the night of June 22nd, the two fleets actually passed each other in the night, each mistaking the other for friendly ships. A week later, the British arrived outside the port of Alexandria, barely two hours after the French had set sail, destination unknown. Finally, after three months of frustration and near misses, the British caught up with the French fleet at Aboukir Bay, not far from the city of Rosetta, at the mouth of the Nile. On paper, the two forces were relatively evenly matched. Each had 13 ships of the line, the massive wooden battleships which were the backbones of Napoleonic navies. A ship of the line could have over a hundred cannon, and crews of over a thousand men. The French fleet had a slight advantage in ships. Four lighter support vessels compared with two for the British. Plus, the French ships were, on balance, slightly larger and more modern. However, the British had a clear advantage in personnel. Britain had a long and well-established seafaring tradition. In most European countries, the navy played second fiddle to the army. But in Britain, a naval career was relatively respected and lucrative, which attracted talented officers and gave them incentive to stay in the service. In the lower ranks, British dominance of trade and commerce gave them a large pool of skilled, experienced sailors for naval recruitment, voluntary or otherwise. As a result, the British Navy was unmatched in professionalism or seamanship. It was a very different story in the French Navy. We've talked a lot in past episodes about the chaos in the French army caused by the Revolution all those defections and executions, especially of officers, combined with the casualties suffered in those desperate early years of the war, created a leadership crisis in the army. In time, competent officers rose to the top, and the French army came out of this crisis even stronger. Well, some of those same factors created a similar crisis in the navy as well, and unlike the army, they still hadn't recovered. In the 18th century, it took a lot more time, training, and experience to make a good sailor than it did to make a good soldier, and that applied to officers as well as enlisted men. The Republican armies often used courage and commitment to compensate for their shortcomings. There were plenty of brave men and loyal Republicans on French naval vessels, but navigation is a science. Seamanship is a complicated trade. No amount of courage or commitment can overcome a lack of basic knowledge or skill in these fundamental aspects of naval warfare. It was a vicious cycle. The French Navy had too many inexperienced men and officers, and so they lost battles. 
Men were either killed or captured in these battles, and had to be replaced with fresh recruits or newly promoted officers. And so the average crew became even less experienced, and so the Navy lost more battles. And this was a service that had always suffered from inattention. France had always primarily been a land power, under the monarchy, the Girondins, the Jacobins, and under the Directory. Each successive government had always given priority to the army. This particular French fleet, anchored at Aboukir Bay on August 1st, 1798, was especially weak. Just like their comrades on land, the French were suffering from hunger and thirst. Every time they went ashore to find food and water, they were attacked by Bedouins. Supplies were running low, rations had been cut, and it had begun to take a toll on the sailors. And so, for all these reasons, it was the smaller, older British fleet that was on the hunt for the French, not vice versa. On August 1st, 1798, the French had nowhere left to hide. They were anchored in a bay, and the British stood at the entrance. The long-delayed showdown with the Royal Navy could not be postponed any longer. The French were commanded by Vice Admiral François-Paul Bruess d'Aguillet, a 45-year-old former aristocrat. Bruess joined the Navy when he was just a teenager and had been groomed for high command all his life. He had a glowing record in the American War of Independence, and was one of the few French naval officers to avoid defeat and humiliation during the War of the First Coalition. Bruess had served as Bonaparte's naval counterpart during the First Italian Campaign, and Napoleon had grown to like and trust him. The British fleet was led by 39-year-old Vice Admiral Sir Horatio Nelson. At this time, Nelson was still relatively unknown to the public, but within the Royal Navy, he was already considered one of Britain's best. Today, Nelson is easily one of the most famous individuals of the entire era, maybe even second to Napoleon himself, especially in the English-speaking world. I plan to give him the proper introduction he deserves in some future episode, but to put it briefly, Nelson was a real, authentic genius at naval warfare almost of the same magnitude as Napoleon's genius at land warfare. As a leader, a tactician, and a sailor, he was among the best the world has ever seen. There are some very good reasons Horatio Nelson is one of the few names from Napoleonic history that almost everyone has heard. But in 1798, he was just another British admiral, whose name and biography would have been familiar only to Navy men and news junkies. The battle that was about to take place off the shores of Egypt would be the first milestone in building the Nelson legend that would make him immortal. The two fleets made contact late in the day on August 1st. By the time Nelson's fleet was fully deployed outside Aboukir Bay, it was nearly evening. The French were anchored in a shallow defensive arc, hugging closely to an area of shoals or submerged sandbanks. Bruess had been expecting Nelson and chose his position carefully. To understand the tactics of this battle, we have to zoom out a bit and look at how 18th century naval warfare worked. Warships had the vast majority of their guns along their sides, so the goal was always, whenever possible, to engage the enemy with their ships facing head-on and your own ships facing sideways, thus maximizing your own fleet's firepower and minimizing the enemy's. The strongest tactic was what's known as crossing the T, which means to move your fleet in a line perpendicular to the enemy fleet, thus allowing each of your ships to fire a broadside into the enemy fleet, 
while only being exposed to the few guns positioned at the very front of the first ship in the enemy line. The French fleet was in a line, but protected at the front and back by those shoals. If Nelson tried to enter the bay and cross the T at the front or back of the French line, he would find the water was too shallow, his ships would run aground, and become sitting ducks for the French. But this was a worry for tomorrow. By the time the British fleet assembled, it was only a few hours before sunset. Everyone in both fleets probably assumed there would be no battle on August 1st. From his flagship, the HMS Vanguard, Nelson surveyed the French fleet with his one good eye. The French line was perpendicular to the entrance of the bay. If the British fleet entered the bay by the central channel, each ship would have to face the broadsides of the French fleet head-on. Bruess had his fastest ships at the front of the line, clearly planning to use them for a counterattack, keeping the British hemmed in in this unfavorable formation, maybe even trapping them in the bay. Nelson had no intention of walking into this trap, but there was no clear alternative. Aboukir Bay is dangerous to navigate, full of shifting sandbanks, shoals, and submerged rocks. The only obviously safe course was the one Bruise wanted him to take, right into the teeth of the French guns. But upon close examination, Nelson detected an opportunity. Those light ships at the front of the French line were not anchored as close to the shoals as they might have been. It would be tight, but he saw a channel along the edge of the shoals that was just wide enough for his ships of the line to hug the shore and pass in front of the French fleet, not only avoiding Bruess's trap, but crossing the T on the French fleet. Once they saw him coming, the French would redeploy to face the threat, but the wind was blowing south, Nelson's ships would have the wind at their backs, and the French would be maneuvering against the wind, giving the British a considerable advantage in speed and maneuverability. With the wind on his side, Nelson believed he could swallow up the front half of the French line before the rear half could maneuver to stop him. If he was right, it could easily result in a victory of historic proportions. Nelson was not the type of man to see an opportunity and let it pass by. To everyone's surprise, late in the afternoon on August 1st, the order came down to prepare for battle. While the fleet moved into position, Nelson enjoyed a last supper with his senior officers, at which he confidently told them, quote, By this time tomorrow, I shall have gained a peerage or Westminster Abbey. End quote. By that, he meant he would either be alive and awarded with a noble title, or dead and awarded a hero's tomb in the most prestigious place imaginable. Even Nelson's most fervent defenders don't deny that he was a glory hound. As the British fleet came into view, clearly fixing for a fight, and clearly not headed for the central channel, panic reigned among the French leadership. There were still a large number of men ashore, looking for food or water, and it would be too late to summon them back. Worse, Nelson was spoiling Bruess's carefully laid plan. The fleet was prepared to fight stationary. Some of the French ships were physically chained together. Some had moved all of their cannon and gun crews to the seaward side of the ship. Sailors raced to undo these preparations, while their officers struggled to come up with a new plan. Admiral Bruess himself had a promising idea, to feign retreat, like he was making a dash for the entrance of the bay, thus luring the British fleet onto a rocky shoal in the middle of the harbor, then turn and fight. 
the drums beat out the order to set sail and put the plan into action, but it was already too late. The British were nearly upon them. Only one light ship set sail on this mission before the order was cancelled. The French braced themselves to face Nelson's fleet as best they could. But as the British ships filed into the harbor, the Republicans simply weren't ready. The drummers were beating the call to action, but the response in the French fleet was sluggish and uncoordinated. Maybe it was panic. Maybe it was a simple lack of skill. Maybe it was hunger and thirst. By contrast, British seamanship was truly remarkable, even by the high standards of the Royal Navy. During the battle, nearly all of Nelson's 14 ships passed dangerously near a shoal at least once. Only one ran aground, and only four suffered minor hull damage. This is often cited as one of the great British achievements of the battle, and rightfully so. But I think it should also be mentioned that Nelson's men kidnapped several Egyptian sailors and fishermen who knew this bay well, and probably could not have pulled this feat off without their coerced assistance. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. The battle began in earnest around 6.30. It unfolded exactly as Nelson had envisioned. His lead ships evaded the shoals and hooked around the front of the French line, crossing the T. Within minutes, the ship at the front of the line, the Guerrier, was so badly damaged that it became totally inoperable little more than a charred raft, drifting aimlessly out of formation. By sunset, around 7 p.m., four British ships of the line had managed to work their way between the French line and the shore. Remember, none of the French ships were prepared to fight on the landward side. The British picked their targets. Each was joined by a second ship, approaching from the seaward side. Just as Nelson had predicted, the French ships at the rear of the line were unable to maneuver to help in the face of an unfavorable wind, and so each French vessel was forced to engage two British ships simultaneously. After only a few hours, this was clearly shaping up to be a disaster for the French. But even against tremendous odds, they fought back tenaciously, especially against approaches from the seaward side, where they actually had been prepared to face the British. Nelson's flagship, the Vanguard, made the first attack from this direction, and suffered a series of devastating broadsides from the French ship Spartiat. The Vanguard was only saved from potentially crippling damage by timely intervention from Nelson's captains. Despite all the efforts of the French officers and sailors, nothing short of a miracle could have pulled out a victory at this point. At the front of the line, every ship fought a desperate battle, outnumbered two to one. At the rear of the line, the French were still stuck, praying for a change in the wind. Giddy with success, the British got cocky. The HMS Bellerophon attacked the French flagship, the Lorient, a vessel nearly twice her size, with twice as many cannon. 
Less than an hour later, the Bellerophon was completely disabled, with her rudder and all of her masts destroyed, and half her crew and nearly all of her officers dead or wounded. If the name Bellerophon sounds familiar, it's probably from a very famous voyage she would take 17 years later, from western France to a remote island in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, St. Helena. But we have quite a long way to go before telling that story. Anyway, the crew of the Lorient didn't have long to savor their victory. As the remains of the Bellerophon drifted away, the French flagship was engaged by three ships of the line. The Lorient was without question the most formidable ship in the bay on either side, but even she would be hard-pressed to hold off three determined opponents. As darkness fell, the fighting raged on. Admiral Bruess was wounded, but remained at his post. He was hit again, and still refused to go below decks. Finally, at around nine, the French admiral was hit a third time, and perhaps mercifully, succumbed to his injuries. Nelson was wounded too, struck in the forehead by a piece of debris. It was a glancing blow, but for some reason he was convinced he had been killed, until he was taken below and given a few stitches and a clean bill of health by a surgeon. To his credit, he immediately returned to duty, but whatever his merits, Nelson was clearly a high-strung man. By now, the Lorient was nearly crippled. Fires had broken out on board, and her beleaguered, much-depleted crew was losing the battle to control them. It was becoming increasingly clear that it was only a matter of time before the ship was consumed by flame. Sailors began abandoning their posts to jump into the bay and swim for safety. At around 10 p.m., night suddenly turned into blinding daylight, and a terrible, sickening sound somehow drowned out all of the cacophony of battle. The fires on the Lorient had reached the gunpowder magazine, and in an instant, the mighty ship was blown to kindling. A British sailor who served on the HMS Goliath during the battle would later recall, quote, When the French flagship blew up, Goliath was so shaken that we thought the stern of our ship had exploded. End quote. The man who wrote that, John Nicol, was a veteran sailor, and he wasn't even on one of the vessels nearest to the Lorient but apparently the explosion was big enough that he thought it was part of his own ship. Even in the heat of the battle, everyone on both sides paused, stunned by the magnitude of the explosion. After a few moments, silence was broken by gentle tapping rhythm, like the sound of rain. It was the debris of the Lorient and her crew, blown sky-high, falling onto the decks of ships. Moved by the horror of what they'd seen, and by the cries of burned men clinging to wreckage in the bay, British ships sailed towards the wreckage to pick up survivors. Whatever side they were on, all of these men were sailors, and they all dreaded suffering a fate like the sailors on the Lorient, and hoped someone would take pity on them if they were ever so unlucky. There were at least 500 men on board the Lorient that night, perhaps nearly a thousand. Only around 70 survived. Somehow, despite the hopelessness of their situation, even after watching their comrades on the Lorient blown to smithereens, the remains of the French fleet continued to resist through the night. Just before five in the morning, the wind finally changed, and two French ships from the back of the formation were able to slip out of the bay to safety. The escape was led by Captain Pierre-Charles Villeneuve of the ship of the line Guillaume Tell. It was whispered in some quarters that this was an act of cowardice, 
but others praised his initiative and seamanship in saving two valuable warships from near-certain capture or destruction. The government seems to have agreed with the latter assessment, because Villeneuve was soon promoted to admiral to fill the shoes of the slain Bruess. But Villeneuve and Nelson had not seen the last of each other. Seven years later, they would command opposing fleets in a decisive engagement off the Spanish coast, near a place called Cape Trafalgar. After Villeneuve's escape, every other French vessel that remained in Aboukir Bay was eventually captured or destroyed. Stubborn French resistance continued until well after dawn, but the British had secured a complete triumph. Just like with the Battle of the Pyramids, this engagement is accurately called the Battle of Aboukir Bay by a minority of scholars, but it is widely known by a much catchier name, the Battle of the Nile. It was a near-total victory, the greatest British naval achievement in a generation. And it even made a good story. A daring plan and superior seamanship had won the day. Nelson had predicted that if he lived, the battle would win him a noble title, and he turned out to be right about that prediction too. Sir Horatio Nelson would soon become Baron Nelson of the Nile. When news of the victory reached Britain, spontaneous celebrations broke out all over the country. As we've discussed in past episodes, Napoleon was an expert at using his official dispatches to build his public reputation. To this end, he could be absolutely shameless in spinning the truth to his advantage. However, the massive French defeat at Aboukir Bay was such an obvious, unmitigated catastrophe for the expedition that even a master of spin like Bonaparte had no choice but to acknowledge it. From his public statement on the Battle of the Nile, quote, the fates wished in this, as in many other circumstances, to prove that, if they have granted us dominance on land, they have given the realm of the oceans to our rivals. But no matter how great this reversal, it cannot be attributed to the inconstancy of fortune. She has not abandoned us yet. Far from it. She has favored us in this operation more than ever. End quote. He went on to list the achievements of the Army of the Orient and all the good luck that had aided their success. In a sense, he was right. Nelson's victory was confined to the sea. Napoleon's conquests of the preceding weeks remained in French hands, and the Army of the Orient remained intact and undefeated. But there was no denying that the so-called reversal at Aboukir Bay made his task in Egypt exponentially more difficult. Britain was now the undisputed master of the Mediterranean, which meant the Army of the Orient was effectively cut off from France. Without warships to provide escort, resupplying the army from Toulon would be unreliable at best. The expedition would have to make do with whatever they could find or manufacture in Egypt. Reinforcements were probably now out of the question as well. Every man in the Army of the Orient had just become irreplaceable. And as we saw last episode, all it took was a few mistakes for this unforgiving environment to start killing them in droves. Even basic communication with Paris was now a challenge. After the Battle of the Nile, Napoleon and the Army of the Orient were practically marooned. While the British showered praise on Nelson and his captains and the sailors of the fleet, the French were looking for someone to blame for the disaster. As they say, victory has a thousand fathers, but defeat is an orphan. From the days right after the battle up until the present day, a lot of the blame has fallen on Admiral Bruess and not without some cause. 
Bruess was in overall command, and some of the blame for defeat almost always falls on the commander. It was a flaw in his plan that gave Nelson the path to victory. Bruess also has to answer at least somewhat for the poor condition of his sailors. As commander-in-chief, he was the one ultimately responsible for their welfare. Their hunger, thirst, and low morale probably contributed to the defeat. And perhaps conveniently, Bruess died in the battle. He never had a chance to defend his actions, or tell his side of the story. Napoleon seems to have shared this view. He would later write of Bruess, quote, If in this disastrous event he made mistakes, he atoned for them by his glorious end. End quote. I think that's a relatively fair assessment, and Napoleon probably really did believe it. But you could also look at that as a sly way to shift some blame onto Bruess while avoiding actually coming out and saying so. And Bonaparte did have some incentive to look for a scapegoat, because you could easily argue that he himself should share some of the blame. The French fleet had originally moved to Aboukir Bay under Napoleon's orders. Bruess had come up with the tactical plan to defend the bay, but he had not chosen to anchor the fleet there under his own initiative. Until his dying day, Bonaparte maintained that he had given Bruess new instructions long before the battle, ordering him to move the fleet to safer anchorage and continue evading the British, but that Bruess either ignored these orders or was too slow to act on them. It's certainly possible this story is true, but no supporting evidence survives, and many historians doubt it. If Napoleon was trying to shirk responsibility, that's exactly what he would say, isn't it? Then again, if the only proof was in Bruess's cabin on the Lorient, it surely would have been blown to kingdom come, along with everything else on board. It's interesting to consider this question of blame, but when I look at the Battle of the Nile, I find the most satisfying explanation is that the French were simply outclassed. From the leadership all the way down to the common sailors, the men of the Royal Navy were more experienced, more professional, and more skilled. On their best day, the French Navy couldn't match the Royal Navy, and August 1st, 1798, was certainly not one of the best days for the fleet at Aboukir Bay, even before Nelson's attack. The reduced food and water rations had surely taken a toll on physical fitness, morale, and perhaps even cognitive ability. These shortages also forced the French to send large numbers of men ashore in foraging parties, most of whom were unable to return to their ships in time to participate in the battle, leaving the fleet critically short-handed. Maybe you can blame Bruess or Napoleon for the timing or magnitude of the defeat, but this mission to Egypt stretched the fleet to the very limits of its capabilities. From the moment the expedition set sail, Failure was probably the likeliest outcome, no matter what Bruess or Napoleon did. If anything, it's remarkable they were able to operate successfully for three whole months before their luck finally ran out. The Battle of the Nile wasn't just a short-term disaster for the expedition. Nelson's victory dealt a serious blow to broader French geopolitical ambitions. Remember, the invasion of Egypt was just one step in some very grandiose plans to make France the dominant power of the Mediterranean, build a new colonial empire, curtail British influence in India, and ultimately to reroute global trade and challenge Britain's dominance in the commercial and maritime realms. One naval defeat, no matter how decisive, wouldn't be enough to make French policymakers abandon all of those grand ambitions entirely. 
but the Nile unquestionably put them further out of reach, and strengthened voices within the French government who were more interested in pursuing dominance over the European continent than challenging the British for global, naval, and commercial power. The Battle of the Nile also reverberated on the diplomatic stage. The French won the War of the First Coalition, but as we discussed, the new post-war status quo left almost nobody satisfied. Even under the more conservative directory, the regime in Paris remained ideologically unacceptable to the old regimes of Europe. Italy and Germany remained as flashpoints for conflict between France and Austria. Above all, the other great powers simply considered France too powerful. The crowned heads of Europe all made peace with the Republic, but only under duress. They would never accept a permanent status quo that left one country as the undisputed hegemon of the entire continent, especially if that country was a revolutionary republic. And in fairness, the Directory gave the other great powers plenty of good reasons to believe France was an ongoing threat to European security. We'll talk more about the European diplomatic situation in a future episode. For now, suffice it to say that there were a lot of powerful people on the continent who were eager to see French power diminished, but too afraid to challenge the Republic directly on the battlefield. The British victory at Aboukir Bay was a potent message to all those people. The Republicans could be beaten, and French power could be checked. To round things out today, I'd like to say a few words about the cultural impact of the Battle of the Nile. Overnight, Horatio Nelson became a household name, and has remained so ever since. The first baron of the Nile was well on his way to becoming a national hero. As you might imagine, British writers, poets, and artists immediately began to immortalize the battle in patriotic, jingoistic terms. But there was also a more nuanced, less chauvinistic side to the cultural memory of the battle, which I find very interesting. The horror of the sudden, violent destruction of the L'Oréal seems to have made a big impression on the European consciousness. Even in Britain, where the battle was celebrated, the fate of the L'Oréal and its crew became a symbol for the waste and tragedy of war. Death was everywhere in this era, and the wars of the 18th and early 19th century touched almost every corner of the Western world. By 1815, Nearly every hamlet, from Ohio to Moscow, and from Scotland to Cape Town, had lost at least one person at some point between the Seven Years' War and the Battle of Waterloo. For whatever reason, in the ensuing years, the explosion of the L'Oréal became a kind of intellectual focus for all the grief and anger caused by those deaths. Those few hundred doomed French sailors became stand-ins for hundreds of thousands of men and boys from all over the world who would never come home. Modern audiences are probably most familiar with the poem Casabianca by Felicia Hemans, which was published in 1826 and depicts Giocante Casabianca, son of the captain of the L'Oréal, and one of the youngest casualties of the explosion. If you went to school in an English-speaking country, you might recognize the opening lines. Quote, the boy stood on the burning deck, whence all but he had fled. End quote. The poem has been a mainstay of high school literature classes since the 19th century. It even made a cameo in the film version of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy from 2011. I also borrowed the title of this episode from one of the later lines. I'd like to explore this type of cultural topic more in the future, but we have to leave things there for now. Next episode, we'll return to Cairo, 
where, despite the disaster at Aboukir Bay, Napoleon was working tirelessly as ever to establish French rule in Egypt. Until then, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.